Hello, this is Nick with Rooted in Revelation, where we seek to make God's word our foundation in all of life. Today, we have a very special episode where we're going to be talking about the PCA's General Assembly from a few weeks ago here in 2021. We have Nate with us as usual and a few special guests, Jonathan Hunt, Leroy Osborne, and Matthew Everhard. Um, if you guys just want to give each a very brief summary of who you are, um, what you do in your church, and uh, just a little snippet about what you're presently doing, what God's doing in your life. I'm Jonathan Hunt. I'm the pastor at Armor Bible Presbyterian Church, um, and I'm uh, one of our elders, Leroy, and then we also have Nick and Nate to attend Armor. Awesome. Thank you. I'm Leroy Osborne. I'm a ruling elder at Armor Bible Church, as Pastor Jonathan said. Um, just thrilled to be at Armor. Been here now for six years and uh, just a real blessing. And my name is Matthew Everhard. I'm a guest on the podcast today. I'm the senior pastor of Gospel Fellowship PCA. We're a reformed Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh here in western Pennsylvania. And can I do something really narcissistic and drop a piece of news for you guys? Please do, yeah. So I uh, just found out that my new book on Jonathan Edwards is available on pre-order on Amazon.com as of today. The title of the book is Holy Living, Jonathan Edwards' 70 Resolutions for Living the Christian Life. So uh, I kind of moonlight as an Edwards scholar writing about Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening and things like that. But anyway, thank you so much for letting me have that personal moment. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Glad to be here. That's awesome. And uh, real quick, do you have a favorite resolution? Uh, woof, well, there's 70 of them, but probably the one that I like the most is where Edward says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. That's something I think about almost every single day. Awesome. Well, praise God for that. And uh, we're here to talk about the General Assembly for the PCA in 2021. And uh, I'm new to the PCA. And I think some of our listeners may be coming from diverse backgrounds. So if uh, Pastor Hunt could give just a brief overview of what the PCA is, how it functions, and what the General Assembly is. We'll actually, then after he does that, get into the content of the uh, 2021 PCA General Assembly. So take it away, Pastor Jonathan. For those who don't know, the PCA stands for the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, it is the result of uh, a church that had split due to the Civil War. Uh, the Presbyterian Church had split, and you had the Southern Presbyterian, the Northern Presbyterian Church. The Northern Presbyterian Church, as they became liberal, uh, a branch broke off of them, now known as the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The Southern Church uh, was not going as liberal um, as the fast as the Northern, but they did. And so the PCA, the Presbyterian Church back in the 70s, broke off. And um, we now have the Presbyterian Church in America, not just a Southern church now, it is a church that actually spans uh, both uh, U.S., but also Canada, and we have missionaries around the world. Um, one of the marks of Presbyterianism, um, Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros, 
which is translated usually in our English as elder. So that means we are at our local church ruled by elders. In the PCA, we have what we call teaching elders and ruling elders, uh, which those who rule well, those who teach um, here in the local church level. Uh, but they don't just stop there. Some Baptist churches also have elders in that sense. But we also have a, a more regional uh, body, and that is the presbytery, what we call the presbytery. And that is the teaching ruling elders. The elders from each church are people who are involved in this. And they use uh, that time to not only worship together, but when they gather three, four times a year, but also to make decisions and uh, discuss things going on in their church level. Uh, to put together some uh, overtures or whatever it might be to deal with uh, church discipline cases that maybe come up from the local level that need to be addressed at uh, a more regional level and the like. And so we gather about three, four times a year to do that. Then once a year, generally, um, I'll come back to why that's generally, but generally once a year we gather together, we call that general assembly some denominations would call that like a synod um, technically a synod can still be between a presbytery and a general assembly level but it's a, just a gathering together of uh, the presbyteries around the world uh, around the, the nation around the world and we gather together to discuss business the main business generally is not just reports but but overtures dealing with certain uh, things that Presbyterians would like to see addressed, whether at our Book of Church order level or church discipline cases that get to that level and the like. 2020, we did not meet. Um, that was due to COVID that was um, going on here. But uh, 2021, we did. And that is a subject of discussion for this afternoon. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us that, uh, that big picture overview of the PCA and what the General Assembly is. Um, before we dive into the content of the 2021 General Assembly, uh, Matt, if you're if you're comfortable and able, would you mind giving us kind of a background of the of kind of like the climate going into the 2021 PCA General Assembly? Uh, you know, if it was a big, if there were going to be a lot of big important overtures, if it was a more normative one, anything that stuck out to you. Well, for me, this was an interesting General Assembly because it was my first General Assembly in the PCA. I had just recently transferred into the PCA from another denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church or the EPC. And I had uh, been a part of EPC General Assemblies a number of times. You know, for me, it's always a bit of a thrill to go to the General Assembly. There's always some atmosphere of excitement and anticipation of uh, meeting colleagues, making new friends, networking with uh, other people that are like-minded. And so in some sense, the General Assembly can be a bit of a RefCon, like a Reformation conference, where there's various subgroups and meetings and seminary reunions and all sorts of things that are very, very joyful. And so for me, going into the PCA General Assembly this year, uh, being new to the denomination, I had kind of resolved in my mind that I was going to be very quiet. I wasn't going to approach a microphone unless compelled by some circumstance of God's providence. Um, I was going to sit back and observe and listen and learn as much as possible. 
And so a little bit nervous, to be completely honest. Uh, one thing that's different between the PCA and my previous denomination, the EPC, is that the PCA is much bigger. And so there are a number of more commissioners, a lot more presbyteries, a lot more churches. And so just walking in the door, I felt that the convention hall itself was quite overwhelming. It was very big, huge auditorium, uh, just well, literally thousands of people there. I think we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000 people. Um, but I sense this as far as the meeting and you know the feeling of the room, that something important was brewing in the PCA this year. Of course, a lot of people had been talking about a conference called the Revoice Conference, which was technically not a PCA thing, but it was held at a PCA church and involved some other PCA pastors wherein they had been talking quite a bit about homosexuality and its relationship with Christianity. And this conference, the Revoice Conference, although not technically a PCA thing, did stir up quite a bit of animosity and energy within the PCA for the bad and for the good, I suppose. And so there was a great sense in which the, the General Assembly this year was going to discuss what had not been able to be discussed in the previous year due to COVID. So there was a real sense of the rallying of the troops, in my estimation, for for this General Assembly. Uh, just to make an analogy for the listener, if you think back to uh, the great movie Braveheart with William Wallace, there's this moment where William Wallace is kind of uh, riding his horse back and forth amongst uh, his soldiers, rallying them for battle. And, and to be completely honest, I kind of sensed that the PCA was in for a historically significant moment. Uh, but that was some of my, my feelings and observations just going into the meeting. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, it, it felt like a charged climate. I mean, even being new to the PCA, uh, having some conversations with Pastor Hunt, and and uh, I think you spoke a little bit about the importance of of the uh, 2021 General Assembly on your YouTube channel uh, prior to it, if I recall rightly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was curious what would happen. And, um, you know, I, I remember watching the the Twitter feed because uh, I feel like that was the best way to get news about it. I actually downloaded Twitter just to track it. And um, I felt like a lot of it was very uh, pro revoice. And it was surprising to me because, um, you know, you just I didn't know what really to expect, especially being new to the PCA. Um, Leroy, if we could get your your input here, you and Pastor Hunt uh, went down a before the actual assembly for like the, there was a pre-assembly, right? Where there were some panels and, and things. Is that correct? Well, because the PCA is so large that most of the overtures that are sent up are considered in the greatest detail by a separate committee called the overtures committee. And that committee by itself had about 120 some members. So from Monday into Tuesday and then reconvening on Wednesday, uh, we discussed all of the overtures and then made revisions, amendments, and recommendations, finally, that would be voted on at the floor of the General Assembly. So there was a um, long list of overtures this year. There was a, a personally sort of an apprehensive feeling going down there that uh, some of these things would not be decided the way they were, but there was a very healthy give and take. Uh, ultimately, the recommendations coming out of the Overture Committee on some of the uh, very conservative 
biblically faithful statements was were strongly carried. So there was a it was a surprise really from the first couple of days that it seemed like the direction was was moving more in the favor of the uh, so-called cons or conservatives than maybe the progressive wing. Okay, that that's really interesting. Um, so I know we've talked about the the size of the the PCA General Assembly quite a bit. How many pastors there were that were there? Uh, does anybody know offhand about how many people were actually at the church for the uh, for the GA? I'm not sure exactly how many voting commissioners there ended up being, but just from observing observing the voting process. Uh, it's actually quite cool because you get this little voting gizmo, this little gadget, and when a vote is called, um, you can press one of the buttons. Usually it's just one or two, yes or no. Um, with a, a couple of instances, there are more options than just one or two, yes or no. But when the vote is called, then the, the totals immediately jump up onto the screen to see the result of the, of the vote. And anecdotally, I would just say that most of the votes that I saw ended up in the neighborhood of 1,500 to maybe 1,700 votes on, on most issues. Does that sound, Jonathan, what about right to you? The, there were 2,116 who were registered for that. And depends on the, the vote, uh, whether you know everyone was there or something of that nature. According to my records, I mean, it, some of them did near 2,000, uh, but some of them actually much fewer, up to 1,600. As I'm looking here, even some of the, uh, yeah, some of the more big votes were almost, there were about 1,900, uh, but most of them, I would agree. 16, I have one here, the Overture 23 was almost 1,900. Um, but there, I have one here that is only 1700 over to 37 was, uh, 17 something just over that. And the disparity on the numbers there would just be due to the fact that there's also, um, an ex exhibition hall in which people could go and talk outside people having side conversations, perhaps people in other meetings, uh, some people going back to the hotel for a nap or what, what have you, the, the number of each vote would vary to some extent, although Overture 23, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in just a little bit, probably represents the high, high tide number as far as how many people were voting on any one thing, since that one was about as significant as any other measure that we talked about. Okay, great. And uh, for perspective, for I think Leroy, this was your second General Assembly and, and Pastor Hunt, I think you've been to a number of these, um, if I understand it rightly. How many more people were there than you would normally see at a typical General Assembly from years past? I, I believe the previous record was the first one that I was at two years ago in Dallas, and there were 1,600 commissioners. So this year at 2,100, there was 25% uh, more than the previous record. So it was a, an extraordinary turnout. So you know that when you get a big turnout like that, something significant is happening. Uh, in in your uh, in your group there so uh, overture 23 revoice these things are connected um and i think the interesting thing i don't know if anybody brought it up but i if i recall rightly uh the the revoice conference wasn't that held at the church where the general assembly met this year not exactly it's 
you're, you're, no, you're it right wasn't okay. in the sense that General Assembly was held in St. Louis, Missouri, which is essentially the epicenter of the, the Revoices historic meetings in a church there in St. Louis. However, the, the General Assembly itself was held at a conference hall because probably not too many churches in our, in our PCA denomination would be able to host adequately that many um, commissioners, I would think. Okay. Uh, before we jump into Overture 23, were there any other notable overtures that uh, you would want your congregants to, to be aware of or to know about to know about those, I suppose, before we get into uh, kind of the main thrust of the of the episode here? I would say Overture 23 and Overture 37 are related in both referring to um, moral requirements for office uh, identifying as gay or same-sex attracted or homosexual Christians, the like. Um, there was also Overture 14, uh, which was a revision to the Mission to the World, the MTW manual. Uh, that was a, a pretty significant one, even though that one uh, was a lot closer vote than most of the other ones. Um, there was also Overture 38, which has bearing upon the other, the two first, the first two ones I mentioned, and that was commending the Human Sexuality Report, uh, which is uh, you'll you'll see referenced quite a quite a bit. Um, I would say those are the main ones, though. I as I gave my report to the congregation, I linked not only to these main ones, but also to all of them, because some others might find others more interesting. And I commend uh, the full report to anyone who wishes to read it. And for any congregants who would want to read that, uh, where would that be available? Um, if, you, if you're not sure, we can just link it. I, so. Yeah, I would link it. Uh, the By Faith, which is our denominational magazine, has the full report um uh, did you, nick or nate did you guys get the letter um i'm not sure how to get you the link but the letter that i gave the congregation has the link i even include a qr code for those <laughs> hip ones with a smartphone um but that has the the full report as far as each overture and what what the result was um I have it. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that. Okay. All right. So why don't we talk about really quickly uh, over church 14, if you don't mind, I think you said it was the mission to the world and there was a change in the statement. Um, what was the change and why was it significant? Why don't you take that one, Leroy? Oh, I, I guess help me. I don't recall where we left off in 19 uh, or 1989, <laughs> 2000, the, the previous General Assembly. There had been an overture that was, was it approved or, or batted forward on, on MTW on the same issue? It was approved. Um, and then there was an outcry essentially against that approval. So basically it, it what? It allowed... Uh, non-ordained people to be in uh, line authority uh, in certain situations. And that was something that uh, a 
group of missionaries in the field responded strongly to, uh, protested and uh, issued a report. And that was then uh, the basis for the overture. I don't know what, I don't remember where the overture came from when it came from a presbytery, I guess it would have had to, right? To, to Pastor Jonathan, but. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it um, has to always come from a presbytery. I mean, things can come from a session and even uh, in multiple presbyteries at that time. I don't know where Overture 14, I guess I could look up where Overture 14 originated. Um, it was one of the several overtures that actually didn't go to the overtures committee. For the most part, we hashed and went through all these things. That particular one uh, was referred directly to the MTW uh, agency and, or the commission rather committee. And they uh, made their recommendation on it. But it, um, again, was a subject of a lot of debate on the floor. Uh, there were people that were deeply concerned that non-ordained people would be put in line authority and in some instances where that had uh, resulted in, in some real life issues. So it was, uh, if I remember, not that, not that widely adopted, but it was the, the change to pro, uh, prohibit that, the changes to the MTW manual was adopted, but that was one of the closer votes at the assembly this year. Well, just to explain a little bit about why this would be important and why it might be tense is that in certain missions contexts, you don't have necessarily the clear ecclesiology that a local church might have here stateside. So for instance, here we have teaching elders and ruling elders, and we also have deacons. And all that is pretty, pretty much laid out as far as scripture and our church book of order goes. But imagine a situation where you're working on the mission field in which you know, that structure may not be immediately discernible or possible. Uh, imagine, for instance, if you were in a mission to translate the Bible, or you're in a mission regarding a medical mission or something like that, there may be a number of skilled and qualified people that would have some sort of rank or authority or some sort of flow chart within the organization, we call that line authority, in which a non-ordained person could conceivably be put over top of an ordained person. And of course that introduces just a number of complexities. One of them has to do with gender. And so some of those who were in, were, were in favor of the change uh, were concerned of um, you know, inadvertently placing females in direct authority over males or non-ordained people in authority over ordained people. And so it truly is a, a difficulty, but it was interesting to see um, a couple of things. One, if you've never been to a general assembly, it's wonderful to see the assembly in process because we truly do have a debate, I think that is fair and, and open. It provides for an excellent exchange of ideas. And then two, it was interesting because some of the missionaries themselves appeared to be split on this issue. You had some who had apparently called for this change and asked for it and others perhaps that that might result in people being either terminated or demoted from their positions. So from a human being perspective, it's a complicated issue, but it was great to see the assembly work through those things peaceably together. And to be clear, um, I guess for our listeners who might not be sure all these numbers and what they mean, 
It's just as overtures get submitted to the General Assembly, uh, they are assigned the number, I believe, probably in which they were received. Um, Overture 14 reads as follows. All this is to be inserted into the Mission to the World, the MTW manual, as follows. All MTW leaders in line of authority over church planting or church development ministry shall be ordained elders. So that was the language that was inserted um, into the MTW manual. All right. Well, thank you for that, guys. So Overture 14, that's pretty big. That's significant. Yeah, it, it's a strange concept to think that, uh, you know, somebody who's not ordained could be, you know, above somebody who is ordained in, in that structure of authority. So, um, yeah, very good. So does anybody have any other overtures they want to jump into and talk about briefly before we jump into overture 23? Um, and I'm pretty much going to let go of the leash here and uh, we can just have an open conversation uh, when, once we once we get to that. But well, let's discuss you know overture 38. I think that that would help, uh, help us understand a little bit what the other two overtures are dealing with. Um, and that is... Two years ago, 2019, a study committee was formulated. And what study committees are is groups of, um, uh, it, so if the General Assembly votes to have a study committee, the chair gets to assign certain people to form a study committee. They study and then they give a report. Generally, there is a majority report and then there is also a minority report that is given. And in this case, uh, I don't know that there was a minority report at all. There was just a report given to the General Assembly and it was called the Human Sexuality Report. Um, either Nick or Nick could probably attach a link so that that could be seen as well. But it was uh, not only just to form the study committee uh, last year, but then they met and guys that are big names got together and met to the names that probably most people are familiar with our um, Tim Keller, uh, who used to be a PCA pastor in New York City, and then Kevin DeYoung, who used to be in a different denomination, but now is a PCA pastor in North Carolina. And these two as well as some other men. And then there were some advising ladies as well who, though they could not vote on that, at least gave their advice and put together this human sexuality report. And it pretty much uh, gave us not only a pastoral take on how to deal with, with these, but a lot of here's what we believe and here's what we don't believe on human sexuality and uh, the identity, that's a, a new buzzword nowadays, identity that people ought to take or ought not to take. All right, and you said that was Overture 38 was regarding the human sexuality report? Yes, it, and Overture 38 was essentially to commend the human sexuality report. What that means is it, it doesn't make any change in our BCO. It doesn't make any change in our 
church constitution, the Westminster Confession of Faith or its catechisms. It's just, hey, we're going to all agree that this is a good report. And that one passed overwhelmingly so. And uh, that was in, was that this year in 2021 that it passed, correct? Correct. It, it passed by show of hands. So there was no numbers, but looking around the room, those who were there could testify. The show of hands was overwhelmingly to commend the human sexuality report. Okay. Can I and, jump in here real quick and just um, add a few thoughts on that? I think for me, as I was you know, reading the room of the General Assembly, that was a moment where I felt assured that this assembly had come for a particular purpose to really underscore our biblical, historically orthodox views on, on human sexuality. The, as, as Jonathan mentioned, it was a show of hands vote, not a, not a numbered vote. And it really seemed like the human sexuality report had the vast, vast, majority support of, of the room. And I think as far as some of my ruling elders went who attended the assembly with us, there was a sigh of relief here. Um, because for two years, given that we couldn't have an assembly last year, there was this, a sense of building anxiety amongst many in the PCA that perhaps, you know, we were headed towards a progressivism that many people weren't comfortable with. And yet when the when the human sexuality report came out on paper, we had a whole year as in, in essence to look at it. And many of us who would view ourselves on the more biblical confessional, I wanna say conservative end of that continuum, breathed that sigh of relief that the report is good. Um, we, we felt good about the report. And so to see that number of hands shooting up in commendation of the report, I think there was a sense across the room in which okay, this is not going to be the big battle that we thought it was. We were rallied to a cause for this particular reason to discuss these issues, but now it looks like maybe, maybe there won't be a lot of bloodshed on the field this day. Uh, so we received this as pretty good news, at least as far as our local church went. Now, was there a concern? Because obviously, you know, a lot of times it's hard to tell before something like the General Assembly occurs what the larger consensus is, because if you go on Twitter, if you go on Facebook, if you look in the news, you know, usually it's it's the minor, the loudest people that tend to be, you know, in a smaller group who get the most attention. Uh, was there a lot of um, my word for it is brouhaha. Uh, but was there a lot of like commotion leading up to this that there was going to be a lot of pushback over overtures? 38, a lot of concern over Overture 23 and all these things that um, maybe left for some significant concern before going to the General Assembly? Oh, I do think that I do think so for sure. There was a sense in which, like I mentioned, there might be a great battle. But when we came to the field, it seemed as though we were far more unified than perhaps we feared. And I think that there is there's a sector of the PCA that we might call the alarmist sec sector, which is constantly worried, afraid, and terrified that we're within one thread of ripping apart at the seams as a denomination, that we're literally standing on, on the brink of, of utter disaster. And I, I think that when the sexuality report was commended under Overture 38, 
there was a collective sigh of, of relief amongst those of us who had come to take a stand that perhaps things weren't quite as bad as maybe we feared. <laughs> but again, this is just my first assembly. I'm just sharing some of my, my firsthand observations and from those of my elders who came with me. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Uh, so what do you guys think? What overture should we jump into next? Or is there more to be said about 38? I don't think so. Um, I do, those who are listening, I do encourage you to go on and read that. Not only, it's not just a stance, but I think it will help as you deal with maybe friends, neighbors, family, uh, what are some good resources that you can point them to to help them understand where we stand? There is a lot of naysayers um, who would take a look at the PCA. I mean, it came out on the news and everything that we were intolerant. Uh, we are uh, homophobia, um, afraid of homosexuals. Um, we d we're not... Uh, we don't even want you to enter our church doors, the like, and none of that is, is true. The fact is, uh, we do love sinners of all, of all kinds, um, and we, we call them to repentance because we love them, and we do not want them to suffer the wrath and curse of God due to them for their sins, and so we will preach the gospel. We believe that is the loving thing to do. Um, and so I encourage you to, to read that, and that might help you in how you minister to friends and family, coworkers, neighbors. Amen. Um, I, I would say the next one logically would be Overture 23, uh, which is the overture was to amend the BCO, Chapter 16. BCO is a acronym for Book of Church Order to amend the BCO chapter 16 by adding a clause which prohibits ordination for men who self-identify as gay Christians, same-sex attracted Christians, homosexual Christians, or like terms. And the amended language would read as follows. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity, parentheses, such as, but not limited to, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or the like terms, and parentheses, that undermine or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, parentheses, such as, but not limited to, same-sex attraction, and parentheses, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions, are not qualified for ordained office. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to see that language as anything else but a direct uh, refutation of the Revoice theology as expressed by various of their speakers that they've had in their conferences over the years. Uh, this, in my view, was a pretty strong statement by the PCA in favor of our biblical, historical, orthodox understandings of human sexuality. Essentially, what this is trying to do is to make sure that officers, pastors, elders, and the PCA are not implicitly endorsing 
in celebrating homosexuality, even in their own self descriptions. So for instance, to call oneself a gay Christian or a homosexual Christian, of course, we understand that we all struggle with various temptations in our lives, some that we can relate to in others and others that we have a more difficult time relating to. Yet, if there's a sense in which any one sin, be it sexual or otherwise, is celebrated to the extent that we affirm that as being a wonderful and beautiful part of the fabric of our humanity, that is ultimately going to be a problem. And for me, um, some of the salient language, as Jonathan quoted, is in that latter half of that overture where it says, if we were to deny the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, in other words, if we're saying I can never change, I'm not even sure I want to change from this. I, I rather like this inclination and I, I don't have much hope of Christ furthering this work in my life or by failing to pursue spirit empowered victory. In other words, if, if you say to yourself, I'm not even gonna pursue the victory that could be mine in Christ or, um, and let's see, or, or pursuing spirit empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations and actions, then they would not be qualified for ordained office. In other words, denying the power of progressive sanctification in the Christian life. That, that would be a problem. If, and, and that would be a problem whether it was sexual sins and temptations or any other sin and temptation. Yeah, that's really significant. Um, when I first heard about what Overture 23 was and, and what this year's General Assembly uh, was going to be over and, and discussing, uh, you know, I looked into some of the history and I think I watched some of the prior, I guess it's when people go up to a microphone and, and kind of state their case for something. I don't know what that is exactly in the General Assembly, but it, it was interesting to see some of the prior things that were said and, and uh, specifically Overture 23 uh, as it related to that. And um, it's an interesting, it's a strange idea. Interesting is not the right word, I think to try to say that a sinful, unnatural desire, are they saying that you could redeem that? I mean, that might be on the wrong side of it or, or that it's just, it's not bad. It's just a part of their humanity and that's okay. Kind of like um, if you like to steal, it's okay that you like to steal. You, you can keep that desire. You don't have to fight against <clears throat> it as long as you don't actually steal or something like that maybe. Well, there is a tendency for some to say, um, because of their, their, their struggle, uh, and by struggle, I'm there, as far as I know, there is no PCA minister or elder or church officer who is living in a homosexual lifestyle who's trying to defend that. Rather, they are saying, this is a sin that... I am trying to mortify, but I want to identify with that to reach others who are maybe trying to come out of that lifestyle into Christianity, or they are trying to, um, uh, you know, identify with that subculture so that they can reach them better. I think generally, I'm not speaking for everyone, but I think generally that's their their idea that the problem comes in is is not saying it is not that they are telling people that 
hey, you know what? This is a sin, and so I struggle with this sin too. I'm trying to mortify and trying to kill it, but I but I understand where you're coming from. I, I've had that struggle too, and it's a daily mortification. It's the attachment to who they are in Christ, their union in Christ, being called a Christian, and then attaching to that their sin. You know, as if someone were saying, "I'm a adulterating." christian i'm a murdering christian something of that nature so trying to attach that but also we're this is very particular talking about ordained office and overture 37 will be you know church officers um because there are going to be people who come out of a lifestyle of homosexuality and they are converted in christ and they might be using hey, I'm a same-sex attracted Christian, and we come along. This is why I wouldn't recommend reading that um, report on human sexuality, because it addresses this, and saying maybe that's not the wisest decision to call yourself that. But for someone who's uh, an officer in the church, someone who's not to be a novice, someone who is is um, more mature in the faith, they... We, we should learn by now not to attach those two, not to attach an adjective of sin to our union in Christ and our identity in Christ. There is a application of the seventh commandment that our, um, our larger catechism addresses, and it helps with that. Also, we would say that some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And I find a, a helpful catechism to explain the catechism. I know that might sound confusing to some, but you can look it up online called Fisher's Catechism. And one of the things that the reason that some sins are more heinous in the sight of God is who is doing the sinning. Um, so a little child lies and they might get smacked on the, the hand by their mom or dad. But a minister who gets up in the pulpit and lies, well, that's, that's different. That's more heinous in the sight of God than others. You should know better. Well, the same goes with those who are ministers. Um, it, is, it is a more heinous thing to identify yourself with that sin than, um, than it would be for someone who's newly converted, a, a novice in the faith. So we would, we would draw a distinction there in this overture. So would it be fair to say that, and I'm sure they're well-meaning people who are trying to do this, but they're essentially trying to leverage their prior identity into an oxymoron where they say, I'm a gay Christian. So like sinful and then redeemed. And you're trying to put those together and, and they really shouldn't be and they can't be because we shouldn't be identifying with our past sin if we're in Christ, correct? Right. Um, Luther had a Latin phrase that he, he coined. I think he coined it. Simul justus et peccator. Um, at the same time, justified and sinner. And some have said, well, see, it's okay to say I'm a, a sinfully justified. And that, that wasn't Luther's intent to say that we are a, um, we could say we're a gay Christian. That That's not his intention there, but more that, you know, we still need to acknowledge that even as Christians, we sin each day in thought, word, and deed.
Well, there are those that have identified as same-sex attracted Christians, gay Christians, homosexual Christians, who would not equate that to a thieving Christian, a, an angry Christian. They would say it's more akin to a disability, that you know they were made that way. Uh, they have not changed one millimeter in their Christian life, and they see that as something that does not change, cannot change. So you, you maintain chastity, but you do not um, really even expect that uh, the Holy Spirit will, will sanctify you. And I, I don't know whether there's any effort to mortify. I mean, you wouldn't mortify paralysis. Uh, so I think that it's, it's a, a wrong category there in many, many opinions. And I think some of the people that I've heard talk about it, they wouldn't even view it as something that needs mortified because they just... Mm-hmm. They view it as a part of their identity that God made them as. And, you know, it's just like, well, it's my duty not to fight against who I am, but to abstain from my desire, as opposed to what I understand to be a more orthodox, you know, this is this this passion is not natural. It's a skew, it's wrong. And we need to we need to seek God's sanctifying grace. Uh you know, to, to ideally be freed from that desire for him to take that from us. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that is, that is. Um, and we, we're not saying that sanctification in this life gets to uh, a, a perfection. Um, as some theologies would say that we can get to a point where we don't sin in thought word indeed every day. And that's definitely not, not the case of what we're holding to. Um, but the fact that same-sex attraction is in itself sinful is clear in Scripture. Um, you know, uh, a man and woman, when they are um, as they're single and they are attracted to each other and are pursuing what a God-ordained marriage, uh, what God has approved, is good and healthy replace one of those with the same gender and and it's unhealthy it is it is sinful in itself and we we have to acknowledge that same sex attraction is sinful and unhelpful to the church so i know that we all agree and 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 we would be able to support that with scripture everything we're saying right now is true and uh for our listeners who may be listening thinking i agree with this i know people who are same-sex attracted or you know they might say gay whatever they want to call themselves um and it's really hard to consider engaging with these people in, in persuading them convincing them uh how do you think that if we know somebody who has these passions and are okay with them or maybe aren't okay with them and in whatever case how, how what do you think is the is the best way to engage with somebody like this should we look at uh homosexuality like like any other sin where we view them as you know a sinner in need of saving grace in the gospel uh or should we tread a little more lightly given our political cultural climate what do you guys think well, um, there's a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that's often brought up in these conversations, and I'll just read it. It says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers 
will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you just read that, it's like, woof. all right, well, that's pretty, stating your terms pretty clearly there, a little bit intimidating. But then in the very next line, it says, and such were some of you, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. And so on one hand, we have the reading of the law, and then we have immediately following it, a clear proclamation of the gospel. And here, the very grammatical tenses of the terms are very important because Paul says, such were some of you, pastors, but something dramatic has happened in you that you have crossed out of the, uh, the box of greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers and homosexuality, and you've, you've traversed a line, you've crossed a line, something has happened to you, you've been regenerated, you've been born again, you've experienced the in working power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says such were some of you in verse 11. Because what happened to you is that you were washed, you were sanctified, which means to be set apart, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I think even the way Paul says that there, he frames up homosexuality in the context of other sins. And certainly we're, we're not suggesting that homosexuality is the one sin that's going to keep you out of the church or keep you out of heaven. That's certainly not true. Right. Any one sin would keep you out of heaven. Any one sin must needs be repented of. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in one sense, there's nothing different at all between preaching the gospel to a homosexual as to an adulterer or an idolater or an angry person, whatever. We just we preach the gospel and we trust that the Holy Spirit does does his saving work in uh, one's life. And so in one sense, nothing different at all. On the other hand, I think we do recognize that we're in a unique day and age in a particularly strange time in which our understandings of sexuality in general and gender in particular and sexual inclination to name another these things are directly being challenged and confronted in almost every sphere of our society, including our universities, our schools, our uh, town halls, our churches. And so there is a sense in which this sin does rise to the level of much discussion. And so it's, it's time for the church to be clear. And what I was encouraged by about the General Assembly is I think our our beloved denomination took a step towards clarity in the statements that we passed. And I think our sexuality report does a very good job of cleaning up those issues. You know, the whole revoice theology or the side B theology is a very nuanced position. And it is actually kind of hard to understand because on one hand, side B Christianity is suggesting that they don't endorse acting in homosexual ways, and they would call that sin. On the other hand, it seems that they speak out of the other side of their mouth, though, when they tell us that homosexuality is a certain gifting in which the church needs these kinds of uh, special experiences that gay Christians offer to the church. And so that causes us to say, well, okay, what are you, what are you saying? It's a, it's a nuanced position to apprehend. And I think, uh, you know, for any listener out there, please follow the links on this podcast and at least give that sexuality study an overview, because in that study, there are 12 fundamental points at the very beginning of the study that I think are extremely clarifying about what we mean about sin, about the gospel, about gender, about uh, sexuality, and about the hope of sanctification 
in Christ. So make sure to, to go to those links and give that study at least a cursory overview. I think it will be helpful. Now, uh, you said something interesting, and maybe it's just my conservative sensibilities that whenever I hear the word, the words personal experience, I, I jump to critical race theory. But um, given that it is so widely accepted in American culture, um, you know, no doubt the church will feel that to some degree. Uh, do you think that 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 idea that experience is paramount to so much of what we do and that we're, that people are trying to override objective truth with experience, do you think that that impacts the revoice theology in, in how they're trying to make changes um, in the church? Well, I, I think when we talk about human experience, we're, we're immediately entering into a difficult topic because somebody else's experience or claims to experience are almost non-falsifiable, <laughs> which is why it can be such a powerly wielded tool to, uh, to advance certain ideologies. For instance, if you, if you told me, hey, before we came on the podcast today, I saw a ghost, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not sure how I can falsify that claim, uh, given that I'm not in your mind or in your experiences. So the idea of using a personal experience to advance an ideology is that's <laughs> it's obviously troublesome because it's very difficult to refute somebody's claims. And so we see this, of course, in conversations about critical race theory, as well as gender, transgenderism and other things. But for Christians, um, you know, our foundation of epistemology, how we how it is we know anything about the world doesn't begin with somebody else's claims to experience. It doesn't even begin with my own claim to experience subjectively, but our worldview is founded and informed primarily on the word of God. So no matter what else somebody tells me has happened to them, they may very well be true or at least trying to be true, but our understandings of truth have to be composed from the bricks of, of scripture itself. That's where our foundation truly lies. Amen. It's almost like one uh, could say it has to be rooted in revelation. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's where we came from with the podcast, everything we do. I mean, some people may think we're talking about eschatology, but no, we're, we're talking about God's revelation, the, his special revelation to us that, that gives us the gospel that tells us who he is, who we are. Um, and if we don't base our life on that, then, you know, we don't have an anchor. Everything is up for debate and subject to argument based on who you are and what you think truth is. And um, so kind of within the same realm, I guess, does anybody else want to just say anything about the importance of being rooted in revelation? Revelation, And um, maybe there's a Christian who's listening who isn't taking the Bible that seriously. Maybe you're a Christian who is apathetic about your Bible reading and you haven't been in the word in a little while. And, you know, you're, you're being exposed to media, whether it be radio, TV, whatever movies. And um, I don't know, is there any word of exhortation or encouragement that you have for that person who may be being influenced more by the world than, than the word of God? I'd say in relation to this um, uh, example is I have a I've on one side of our where we own is a neighbors who are two guys who live together in a homosexual relationship. And 
we went over there when we first bought the property and introduced ourselves and my wife and I went over and we knew uh, the situation and we still want to express hospitality and, and he once he found out I'm a, I'm a pastor he's like well you know my husband and I are, are homosexuals um, what do you think of that and being rooted in revelation, it really doesn't matter what I think. And I told him, I says, it really doesn't matter what I think. But let me tell you what the Bible says, that sin is sin. Homosexuality is one of the sins um, that God names. However, it doesn't stop there. And then I showed him from scripture, the good news of Jesus Christ, who forgives us of our sins, cleanses us from unrighteousness. It gives us a, a hope of heaven, hope of eternity. And all through Jesus Christ, we talked about how Christ earned perfect righteousness and imputed that to our account and then took upon himself our sin and suffered the wrath and curse of God on our behalf and that how, how Jesus Christ saves us. And so uh, I went to the Bible to show him what the Bible says. If we come at this issue with, well, this is what I think, this is my experience, and I'm arguing against your experience, we, we're going to be passing in the night or butting heads, but there's not going to be an authority, um, a grounding that we both can come to. We all have our presuppositions. Um, it, it's when our presuppositions are founded in the word of God that we find that our standard is above reproach. Amen. And um, for those of us that may feel less bold than you and might find that quite daunting, um, can you just speak to uh, God's sovereignty and salvation and how it, salvation isn't up to us. We're the messengers. We, we deliver the news, but it's up to God to change hearts and maybe just give an encouragement to, uh, to believers who want to be bold, but maybe feel like Moses, like they, they can't speak. Um, what would be your encouragement to a, to a, to a believer like that? There is, especially in trying to keep within the subject matter that of discussion, um, really good, books by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield um, because not only is it a discussion on where she's come from who she lived in a lesbian lifestyle um, and God saved her but she also shares her experience we talk about experience but of how a minister reached out to her and that was through just hospitality inviting her over for dinner, getting to know her, talking to her about Christ. Um, I, I sincerely, you know, am all for reaching out and showing love to our neighbors, um, being kind to them, being loving to them, telling them about Christ. If we don't believe that hell is real, we're not going to be too um, uh, passionate about telling and warning people against hell. If we don't believe that Jesus Christ truly forgives sins, we're not going to be very passionate about telling them that Jesus forgives sin. But if we do believe this, like we say we do, 
then we would we should be passionate about saying, listen, you're a sinner and I love you. And I want to tell you about Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. Um, I want to tell you and warn you about hell, about the wrath, the curse of God that is due to us for our sins. And, and hey, I'll even tell you about my experience of being forgiven of my sin, the guilt being lifted off my shoulders. Um, so it starts with our own hearts, not just our heads, but our hearts being passionate. And then just reaching out out of love for our neighbors, our friends, our family, and saying, you know, I, I'm going to have to go out on a little limb here because I know within my own heart, I'm afraid of what you might think about me. But I also know that one day you're also going to think ill of me, but I don't tell you the truth. Um, one way that we can uh, imagine this is if a blind man is walking towards a cliff and we're getting ready to tell him and warn him about the cliff, we're worried that he's going to be upset with us for trying to change his direction. But we'll also, it's going to be overcome by not wanting him to think ill of us because we didn't tell him about the, the cliff or the pothole or wherever it is that he's heading to. And we're passionate about that. But ultimately we're concerned, what does our Lord think? And, you know, we've been forgiven. How can we not tell others about this? Amen. Uh, Matt, you're muted. Sorry. Uh, thinking too about the total dominion of Christ's Lordship I think one of the things that we, we do well to preach when we're preaching the gospel is the absolute kingship and the lordship of Christ, such that when a person is converted, there is no small pocket or recess of his of her life that Christ will not ultimately claim dominion over. Mm. There is no autonomous zone within the human life and heart that Christ will not seek to make fully his own when he takes possession of us in the gospel. And right now, unfortunately, we live in a time in an age where sexuality and gender is sort of setting itself up as that, auto remember that autonomous zone in Seattle or Portland or wherever, wherever it was, like this is a no touch zone. Well, no, in the Christian life, when Jesus saves us, he claims dominion over absolutely every part of us, including our sexuality, including our understanding of gender, including our mind, including our voice, what we're going to say, what I'm going to do with my hands, what I'm going to do with my 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 other members that are unspeakable, uh, what I'm going to do with my wallets, how I'm going to treat my wife and my children, and what um, how I'm going to serve others. Christ claims kingship and absolute dominion over us, which is why this cannot be the one topic that's off topic for us, and we have to continue to preach the gospel even to those that are in rebellion in this issue because. It is an issue of, of rebellion. It is an issue of, of sinfulness. And we can't soft step around this topic just because it's controversial. We have to speak a clear word in an unclear age. And thankfully, our gospel does that. By the way, welcome, Nate. See you on the line over there. How are you, brother? Good. Good to see you. Sorry, still got my work clothes on. I was, just got home. so. But I'm enjoying this uh, conversation very much. Appreciate everything you guys are saying, especially tying in the word of God to this discussion. Um, it's so important that we are truly are rooted in God's revelation. I mean, without it, where would we be, right? And um, 
soon as we start walking on that edge or start kind of pushing away from that in favor of even emotionalism, which can be a very tempting thing for us, especially in the culture we find ourselves in, you know, with the kind of movies that kind of push push these agendas on us. Um, and if we're not careful and not close and cautious, and, and, and if we're not in the word, uh, we're not going to pick up on these, these things the way we ought. Um, so I'm just very grateful for what uh, all you, all you guys are saying here is really helpful. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give Nate full host duties for the rest of the podcast episode. And uh, just after, uh, just after this. So uh, we talked about overtures 14, I think 38 and 23. Is there anything else on 23 that uh, you guys think would be relevant to talk about or helpful to talk about before moving on? I don't know if there are any other overtures specifically uh, that you had in mind to, to kind of review here. Well, at some point, you know, we need to say that this is not a done deal. The Constitution of the uh, PCA, the Book of Church Order, has not yet been changed. That that requires a vote of two-thirds of the presbyteries in the uh, PCA over the next year. There are 88 presbyteries, so 59 or more would have to vote approval. And then if it is approved by uh, two-thirds or more, it goes to next year's General Assembly for a final vote, and that is held in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, uh, a presbytery, is that like a region of Presbyterian churches? Is that correct? Right, right. So we're, okay. we're Armour is part of the New York State Presbytery, which is all of the PCA churches outside of Metro New York, for example. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And so if the two-thirds vote gets passed, then it would go to the General Assembly next year. Now, I think, Pastor, when you came back from General Assembly and you gave a brief overview, I think you uh, it was either you or Leroy who said that um, if a presbytery doesn't vote, it's it's counted as a, a negative, correct? It just, it's not a wash. That is, that is correct. It has to be voted in the positive by two-thirds of the presbyteries. I, I, I doubt that there will be any Presbyterians who, who refrain from voting as a whole. Um, I, I've, in all my years, and I've been in the PCA for going on 10 years, I've yet to see any Presbyterian refrain from voting on an overture that needed to be voted on by them. That's encouraging. Because when we said that in the service, I was like, oh, no, like, is it common for them not to vote? Um, so that's good to know. And um, I, so like, I guess a question would be if it went so well, because I, I think that if we, if I remember rightly, it got an overwhelmingly positive result. Um, would there be anything that you think could change the position of two thirds of the, pre or a number of the presbyteries to uh, push it underneath that two thirds mark that it needs? I, I'm not sure what would all be done. There's a lot of, politicking that goes on during this time between now and when presbyteries will vote and that will be different depending on the presbytery generally and Leroy can correct me if I'm wrong but um, I think our presbytery generally votes on these issues in our May presbytery the reason being because we're Northern Presbytery, our January Presbytery is not always attended well. 
because of winter weather. And our September presbytery is so soon after General Assembly that generally we wait until the May to do this. But I, but I could be wrong. There might be some issues that we would handle in September. Um, Leroy, do you have anything to add on that? Well, I haven't been going to presbyteries for that long, but that's my experience so far. Um, as far as what would change it, um, there would be arguments that some would say, for example, well, Rahab is often called Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. So there's an example of associating her with sin. Um, I guess the answer one is, well, she's not running for church office. Number two, <laughs> um, she's, uh, she's not calling herself that. This isn't a self-identification. Um, this is more of a distinction. So, you know, that, you know, which Rahab we're talking about, because in the, um, in the Old Testament, yes, there's Rahab who was, uh, uh, you know, um, the husband of, of, uh, or the father, or excuse me, the mother of Boaz. But there was also uh, a Rahab that the Bible talks about more generally, and speaking of um, not a person, but of um, uh, a place. And perhaps to distinguish the Rahabs there, to use that Rahab the prostitute. But also, she's not trying to, uh, the text is not trying to marry prostitute Christian, you know, um, and to say that Rahab is not being called Rahab the prostitute because even after she was married, was still wrestling with prostitution. That is not the intention of the text either. So there'll be some who, who try to use such arguments as that to, to present their side of it. And who knows what that will, will do. Uh, I rarely have seen, like once it's overwhelmingly voted on in one way in the General Assembly, it overturned at the Presbytery level. Um, but once again, I've only been in the PCA about going on 10 years. There could have been examples of this that I just either don't remember or were before my time. Okay, that's fair. That is, uh, that's very encouraging then. Um, so I suppose if, if that's really it for the overtures we'll talk about, we'll, uh, to, unless there's something else you might, you guys want to go over from the overtures, um, I guess let's, we could talk about the future of the PCA, you know, um, and what, what you think that'll look like in uh, hopefully next general assembly when it's voted on, um, if, if it does pass, I guess my first question would be, do you think that there would be a significant division or, or a fissure within the PCA as a result of people being upset that uh, Overture 23 and these other ones uh, would pass? Well, I'd say there's also Overture 37, which is related to Overture 38 in that it's clarifying the moral requirements for church office and this one is slightly different and actually had less of a disparity between the the positive and negative votes than overture 38 or overture 23 had um it's somewhat of a longer um amendment to the bco but let me read it 
In the examination of the candidate's personal character, the presbytery shall give specific attention to potential notorious concerns, such as, but not limited to, relational sins, sexual immorality, parentheses, including homosexuality, child sex abuse, fornication, and pornography, and parentheses, addictions, abusive behavior, racism, and financial mismanagement. Careful attention must be given to his practical struggle against sinful actions, as well as to persistent sinful desires. The candidate must give clear testimony of reliance upon his union with Christ and the benefits thereof by the Holy Spirit, depending on his work of grace to make progress over sin. Psalm 103, 2-5, Romans 8, 29 and to bear fruit, Psalm 1-3, Galatians 5-22-23. While imperfection will remain, he must not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his remaining sinfulness, but rather by the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. In order to maintain discretion and protect the honor of the pastoral office, presbyteries are encouraged to appoint a committee to conduct detailed examinations of these matters and to give prayerful support to candidates. And I think the biggest encouragement for me with, uh, I don't know if it's just armor or if it's the PCA at large, um, I recently got a Sunday school teacher packet and that is the most intimidating, daunting packet I've ever read. <laughs> so it's, I think I got, uh, I got, I think it's like memorizing the, the shorter catechism, which is, I think, 105 questions. And when I said, when I saw shorter catechism, I was like, oh, that's, that doesn't sound so bad. And I don't say bad in the negative, but it's like that and uh, Bible verses memorization and, um, you know, b basically uh, the examination of like, hey, there's this question, this question that the session will ask you. Um, and, and obviously it's grace filled. It's not some arbitrary requirement, but as somebody who wants to teach children or teach anybody in the church, you know, I appreciate very much the armor's position on uh, making sure it's a qualified person who knows how to rightly divide the word of truth skillfully. And, um, in, in this particular overture, um, you know, it seems to be pointing at that, that blameless characteristic that we're called that any uh, leader would be called to in Titus or first Timothy. And, um, I, and again, I don't know if that's a standard thing for the PCA in general, but I, I appreciate the seriousness of the qualifications of, of men who are going to be serving in a teaching or leadership capacity. So um, I, I think that's a really encouraging overture uh, because yeah, we, the people leading the church should be mature and they should be good image bearers of God. And, and hopefully all the ways that he's uh, blessed them and all the areas of stewardship, not to say that we're perfect, but you know, that we're, we're not known by those things, but known by Christ. So that's encouraging. Um, that Sunday school packet would be particular to armor though. Other churches probably would have them. Um, Matthew could probably speak a little bit more what his practice is, but yeah, to be our Sunday uh, Sunday school teacher here at Armor, there it's it's not just a simple be a good member and good standing, but um, you actually have to know your theology and you get examined by the session on that. Um, I mean, most people would not send their children to a school where the teachers did not have to have some sort of examination process and filtering process. 
uh, and, and no less should be said for the church in this, especially when it comes to teaching them the word of God. Matthew, what is the practice at, uh, at Gospel Life, right? Gospel Life? Gospel Fellowship, yeah. Well, Gospel most Fellowship. Of our, most of our classes are taught um, by elders or pastors, but we do have a number of classes and studies that are led by other persons. Um, our Christian Education Committee would be the committee that's responsible for deciding who's qualified and who's not to teach. One of the things that we've done in recent years is we've added a leadership course to the fall where we, um, we have several weeks of training for anyone who wants to lead in, in really any capacity, whether they want to be a, maybe a future elder or deacon, they see themselves as somebody who's aspiring to one of the offices, or if they want to teach women's Bible study, or if they want to be a youth group leader or whatever. And we uh, take them through some of the more important aspects of our Christian theology, as well as providing uh, homework assignments for them, light homework assignment, but a project towards the end in which they'll demonstrate some of the competencies that they've gained in the course over the, over the several weeks. So that's, that's one thing that we, we do to try to keep our, our teachers sharp within our church. It's a real blessing. I mean, I have four, uh, four children and um, yeah, I always thought that uh in my experience, the way we did it, just kind of like you said, uh, just a member of good standing who you believe knows the Bible well, you know, has the opportunity to teach. There's really, you don't really often see an examination process. So uh, when, when the Sunday school overseer kind of approached me with that, I was like, oh yeah, you know, that's easy. I, yeah, I can, I can do that. And then, and then I, the packet's like this thick. I'm just like, you know, as much work as it is, it's encouraging. It's exciting. So, um, yeah, I think it's really cool that uh, at the PCA, I, I would say, generally speaking, from what you guys are saying, uh, would, would have those high standards even for the teachers of children. So very encouraging. So, Nick, your question was along the lines of um, where do where do we go from here? Uh, as far as the PCA, um, provided that two thirds of the Presbyteries vote in the positive, this comes to the floor of General Assembly next year. If it doesn't, um, though I've not seen this in practice and it could be just my bad memory or just existed beforehand, if, if in the case it does, I don't believe it comes to the floor even. I think it is just reported to the General Assembly the presbyteries that voted in favor and the presbyteries that voted in the negative and then it it just dies and presbyteries can once again then vote to to address this if it however does get voted in the positive by at least two-thirds of the presbyteries then it comes to the floor um it'll be you know debate will be open not to change anything we can't change anything on the floor once that has been ratified but um, we'll take a vote to affirm the vote, to ratify what we did this year and the Presbyterians did. Um, if that passes, uh, well, if it doesn't pass, then it drops. But if it does pass, then from there, um, it will come back down to Presbyterians to implement this. Um, it will be up to ministers to do this, to 
to refrain from calling themselves a gay Christian or something of that nature, for presbyteries to be a little bit more involved in examination of candidates in these particular areas. With that being the case, though, um, if it is found that people aren't, well, then they can be brought up on charges. That doesn't get that doesn't happen a lot in the PCA. Um, usually, it has to be pretty serious for other churches to bring another church up on a charge. Um, usually, it gets examined by the presbytery and addressed by the presbytery. It doesn't come to the general assembly generally. There is one case, and I don't want to speak too much to it because it's still before what we uh, what we call the SJC, the Standing Judicial Commission, um, um, that is of concerning a particular minister in our denomination, but rarely does it get that far. Okay, so for for an overture to pass, it basically has to go through three voting processes: the original General Assembly, in which it was. Uh, proposed, then it has to go through the next year where there was a two-thirds vote, and then the final year it has to be passed in the assembly again, correct? Correct, and that's just for changes to amend the BCO that were voted on this year. So like the ad interim committee report on human sexuality does not go to the presbyteries. That was just accepted, commended, and is now available. And by the way, we, we who are more conservative and confessional in our mindset, we like that rule in general because the essence of conservatism is uh, less change, right? It's dragging the anchor behind. <laughs> you don't want things changing all the time. That's not good. And Serving. in the same way that our, the Constitution of the United States should not be easily changed, so also the Book of Church Order should not be easily changed. Now, there are times when that may be necessary, but... If you could imagine if the Congress of the United States could, could just change the Constitution in a day, that'd be a real problem because you get the right people elected in one election, then all of a sudden, boom, the nation's something totally different. But we want it to be hard to change the Constitution. We want all the states to go back and to be able to have the right to ratify that, that amendment. Uh, and in the same way, uh, we're in favor of slow, arduous processes because it's actually a form of self-defense for our denomination mm -hmm. to be able to buttress our, our sacred practices and cherished beliefs over time so that they're not easily manipulated or distorted or twisted. Uh, theoretically, we could also modify the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we haven't, haven't done so um, by the same or similar process. But that's good too. We, we would want it to be hard to change our confessional uh, doctrinal beliefs because uh, presumably those things are there because they're, they're solid. They are foundational. They are uh, they're, they're landmark stones. And the Proverbs say you, you ought not to, to move a landmark stone, you know? Um, so in that sense, we're, we're glad that the process is slow and we're thankful for it. Yeah, thank you for going over that. It is, uh, it would be a scary thing to be in a denomination or a church that was subject to the whims of the immediate overseer. So yeah, it's a really good thing. Nate, what do you think? Uh, do you have any questions for these guys? Um, so maybe maybe a more uh, another kind of more practical question that comes to mind. And I know 
think Jonathan, before we started recording, mentioned the, you know, I'm just thinking of potential listeners that may be interested in just how Presbyterians and church government functions. Um, and, and for people that may be interested in, in learning more about these things and understanding these concepts that, um, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I, you know, coming out of um, more of a Baptist background, though, I probably don't even really know what that meant either. Uh, honestly, um, I had a very low view of ecclesiology and things like that. And, and this is also still pretty brand new to me. Um, I love it. I think it's incredible, the boundaries and, and the way these things function, the way they do, I think it protects the church. And for people that may be interested in and just getting a better understanding of what these things are, maybe you guys could um, point some point our listeners some recommendations on on church polity and government and, and things like that coming from uh, this particular denomination we find ourselves in. Well, I mentioned Guy Waters' book, uh, How Jesus Runs a Church. Um, you had Guy Waters on the podcast that was recorded yesterday. Um, I recommend his. There's other guy. There's other books out there. Um, I'll let other guys speak to it as well. A couple of books I have right out of reach here that are generally helpful to those who are not necessarily raised in the Presbyterian Church, uh, died in the wool through and through. But this one by Sean Michael Lucas called On Being a Presbyterian, Our Beliefs, Practices and Stories will give you a basic overview of our doctrine, our history relative to Presbyterianism in the United States, and even a bit about the, the PCA in particular. Um, so that's a good one as a general introduction. And then maybe a little bit more of a historical book would be Seeking a Better Country, 300 Years of American Presbyterianism by D.G. Hart and John Meether. Uh, so those would be a couple of books and maybe we could post those in the link below. But if anyone is really interested and curious about who we are as Presbyterians, you probably couldn't hurt to, to brush up on those two books. Leroy, um, what has you helped? What, what it's helped you on uh, Presbyterian polity. You're uh, muted, Leroy. Too many barking dogs. Um, I said I would strongly endorse Dr. Waters' book. I <clears throat> reread that recently, and it's just a solid, biblically-rooted uh, uh, analysis of, of why we do what we do in the Presbyterian church. Uh, and, and also of, of some of the differences. I mean, not everybody uh, sees things exactly the same, and we share brotherhood with other churches who, who don't uh, see likewise, but it really is so easy to go back and see how, what, what Presbyterianism, how it relates to what we see in the book of Acts and the epistles. Uh, it's just solidly rooted. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and um, real quick, Nick, I, there's another book I, that's been helpful for me, uh, Presbytopia by, um, I think it's Ken Golden. That's another kind of, I think, helpful kind of introduction book on just what are the particular reform distinctives and, and how they go about talking about uh, the essentials and then the distinctives of Presbyterian reformed um, understanding of church polity and things like that. So that's another helpful intro kind of book going on uh i think lucas's book uh, that matthew mentioned as well well i'm gonna that read book was written by an opc minister and yeah. not to be confused with actual presbytopia which is old age eyes 
I know I know very little about Presbyterianism, even though I am in a Presbyterian church. So I'm definitely going to I think I'll pick up Guy Waters book um, first, but just because I've uh, I've interviewed Guy Waters and I, I have a connection there. But I, my goal would be to go through all those. That sounds great. Um, and, and Matt, I do have a question for you. So you said you have been in the PCA for about a year. Um, I don't want you to say anything negative about where you came from or anything like that. But like, what about the PCA made you want to go from where you were to the PCA? Well, I, I had a fantastic experience in the EPC, my previous denomination. I don't have much to say that's bad about the EPC. It's the denomination that ordained me, and I'm thankful for God's uh, using that denomination in my life. Um, I guess my coming to the PCA more had to do with um, the personal change in my life, wanting to be closer to home for the purposes of my parents and my sisters and my family. And so that required a, a move geographically. But I will say that I fit better in the PCA than I did in the EPC in terms of its emphasis on confessional um, orthodoxy. The EPC is a wonderful denomination. But if there's a, a, a spectrum or a continuum of re reformedness or presbytopia uh, in the denominations, the EPC is somewhere in the middle-ish and uh, the PCA is a, a concerted step to the right, in my view, especially in areas like complementarianism, which was a bit of a struggle for me in the EPC. EPC is, a, is an egalitarian denomination with female teaching elders, ruling elders, and deacons. I always sensed a little bit of abrasion there um, from my perspective, being a complementarian myself. But the EPC does a lot of wonderful things. I have excellent mission program, a real focus and heart on the Muslim world. Uh, they have a real spirit of congeniality and just wonderful, warm, kind meetings at both Presbyterian and General Assembly level, and a lot of true friends in the EPC. Although, um, for the most part, I am glad to be in the PCA and very thankful that, that God has brought me here. Very thankful to be at Gospel Fellowship. Love this church. And overall, just couldn't be more, more pleased to be serving the Lord in this way. That's awesome. Yeah, in the church you're you're serving in, didn't somebody else uh, notably serve there prior to you? Well, yes, um, maybe I'm not sure who you're thinking of, but we had two very very long term pastorates here. Uh, Walter Kenyon was the founding pastor; he was here for some thirty years. Uh, Nick Protos was another my immediate successor who was here for uh, predecessor who was here for twenty seven years. But then Ascension Presbytery does have some notable historical figures. Uh, R.C. Sproul was in our presbytery, as was John Gerstner. And John Gerstner was actually, um, I don't think he was ordained here in this spot, but he was received into Ascension Presbytery right here at Gospel Fellowship Church. So we've had a lot of the stalwart giants in and around our presbytery for sure. And most of the older guys know and hung out and studied the Bible with Sproul and Gerstner. So that's kind of cool to be able to fellowship with some of those, some of those legends. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we, uh, I think we may be winding down. Was there, were there any other topics from the 2021 general assembly that anyone wanted to review or any um, kind of final thoughts that you wanted to uh, wrap up with? Um, to our listeners, I guess I would say, you know, if you are attending a Presbyterian church, a PCA church specifically, but I think this would apply to other denominations, um, as you're able to 
send your minister, your uh, the elders of the church to both Presbytery and General Assembly and pray for them. Send them with your prayers. Um, it is vitally important to pray for your pastor, for your elders. They do not have an easy job. <laughs> um, they, they are striving to spend their time to, to go to these things. It's not a vacation. It is a time of work. Leroy and I poured over very thick documents that week, looking and reading and marking up and so that we could um, interact faithfully. So I would recommend that they, they do their, their best to pray for them and to send them. Amen. Anyone else? I'll just say thanks to Leroy for coming. Um, we, in one, one sense, we might say that 2021 was the year of the ruling elder. And we've had more ruling elders this year at General Assembly than any other, as far as I know. And I think a lot of those ruling elders came because they felt that it was important to be there and that they wanted to represent their local church and their presbytery and, and as much as possible to take a stand for biblical truth in an age of compromise. And so for all of you Leroy's out there who have loved and served your churches and presbyteries for years and years, uh, anonymous though you may be, thank you so much for serving the church mm -hmm. of, of Jesus Christ in the PCA by showing up and being accounted for. Really appreciate that. Amen. And Leroy got to be on Overture's committee this year. And so he, he had a, a hand in formulating those overtures. Well, I read somewhere that uh, this is the summer season of the General Assemblies and the PCA being a 400,000 roughly member denomination is far and away the largest. Uh, the OPC is about 40,000 members and another Presbyterian denomination. The ARP is about 4,000, I believe. And the representative from the ARP said their General Assembly was like a family gathering and the OPC was like a business meeting and the PCA they compared to a jamboree. So I'm not sure I know exactly what that means, but it can be a little chaotic at times. But the message that came back this year is one that so many members, so many people that sit in the pews in our congregations so desperately needed to hear from the leadership and the PCA. So praise God for that. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you all for your service to the church and uh, for, for being there for us and for being a part of for these uh, overtures. Uh, Nate, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I would just like to thank um, all of our guests, um, Leroy, uh, Jonathan, and Matthew. You guys, thank you so much for coming to be on Root and Revelation with us to help us better understand the General Assembly and and how the Lord has been behind uh, uh, this going forward. Uh, Lord willing, it will continue to go that way moving forward. And just, yeah, I mean, really, we're me and Nick specifically are just so grateful uh, for the PCA, so grateful for you guys individually. Um, and all that you're doing for the Lord, uh, just remember that your labor is never in vain. Um, uh, thank you guys so much for what you're doing. As I know, as Americans often say, thank you for your service to a, a Marine or something like that. We say thank you for your ministry and what and the preaching of God's word. We need it. Um, thank you for stirring us on to good works. And uh, we're just very appreciative of uh, all of you. 
And uh, I will get the links for the Human Sexuality Report, uh, the Overtures, Matt, your new book that's uh, up for pre-order, and your YouTube channel, as well as uh, some of the other books we talked about. So if you want to check those out, please check out the uh, description for the episode. Uh, And again, this is Rooted in Revelation. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time.